the Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 489 of the podcast. It's Carrie here. I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. I think that's exactly what it's going to do because Shauna Nequest is our guest. It's her first time on the podcast. She is the New York Times bestselling author of Present Over Perfect and her new book, I Guess I Haven't Learned That Yet. More about Shauna in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Glue. You can go to hegetsuspartners.com slash carry and sign up to join the largest faith campaign in history and by Convoy of Hope. You can help the war victims in Ukraine by going to convoyofhope.org slash donate. Well, Shauna Nequest is my guest today, and this is my first interaction with Shauna. Obviously, I've, I've followed her and know what she's done for years. Uh, she is a multiple New York Times bestselling author. She's married to Aaron, and they live in New York City with their sons, Henry and Mac. She's a bookworm, a storyteller, a passionate gatherer of people, especially around the table. And her work has been featured everywhere, including in Oprah's book club. And... Um, you know, Shauna grew up uh, in a very unique environment. A lot of you know her backstory, and uh, we get into that a little bit. Um, but I really wanted to have a conversation uh, with Shauna about what she's up to in this podcast. So that's what we focused on. And she talks in a really powerful way about letting dead things die, reconstructing faith. That's a pretty poignant part of the interview. If you are doing that or have friends that you're walking through, a reconstructing faith. We talk about, uh, well, a period in her own life and then her mother's life and also some friends' lives that I think are fascinating. And uh, how to break from family and church culture with your family's blessing. We're going to talk about all of that in the podcast today. And I got a question for you. Have you seen the He Gets Us ads? Have you seen them? Have you heard them on radio, television, or even online, um, it's a $100 million campaign. And you might know them, they're black and white. It's like, uh, you know, teen mom. It's about Jesus had a teen mom. It, they're really moving ads. And if you haven't seen them, you can just Google, he gets us. But the whole goal is generous donors have come together to fund a $100 million ad campaign, the biggest in American history for a Christian message. And if you've seen the ads or you'd like to, and maybe you're asking yourself, well, what's this all about? Is it a good thing? Or maybe even how can I get involved? I'm telling you, uh, you can get involved and there has never been a campaign like this. He Gets Us is backed by months of in-depth research and was created to help people meet and relate to the real Jesus of the Bible. As I mentioned, there's a budget in excess of $100 million that makes He Gets Us the largest faith campaign in history. And what makes it different is how people who respond to the campaign actually get connected with local churches. I'm taking you behind the scenes in this little excerpt on it. And with early success, like 31 million views on YouTube, 600,000 social media interactions, plus nearly half a million people visiting the He Gets Us website, this is an opportunity for you to get your church plugged in and you can do it right away. When you sign up to become a partner, here's how you do it. You go to hegetsuspartners.com slash carry. Here's what you're going to get. 
coaching and certifications that empower your leaders and volunteers, Bible studies and conversation guides to pick up the conversation with people who saw the ad and want to connect with a local church, and info on how your church can connect with the people who respond. There are literally millions of people looking for answers like the ones your church has to offer. So if you want to be part of this, here's what you can do. You can go to hegetsuspartners.com slash carry. That's hegetsuspartners.com slash C-A-R-E-Y to learn more and get your church involved today. And also our friends of Convoy of Hope, they are incredible people, are helping the war victims in Ukraine and you can as well. To date, Convoy of Hope has served over 100,000 individuals in Ukraine. They are actively distributing supplies in eight countries, in Ukraine, Romania, Poland, Moldova, Bulgaria, Slovakia, Hungary, and Austria. When you donate to Convoy of Hope, here's what your donation does. It gets turned into food, hygiene supplies, feminine supplies, baby supplies, medical supplies, blankets, bedding, clothing, and so much more. It's pretty simple. Here's how you or your church or organization or business can help. Go to convoyofhope.org slash donate. That's convoyofhope.org slash donate. And now my conversation with Shauna Nequest. Shauna, it's so good to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So you got a brand new book. It's called, I guess I haven't learned that yet. Love the title. <laughs> that's, a, that's a fun title. Um, and you wrote, it's a, it's a pretty vulnerable book as your writing goes, that since your 40th birthday, almost every part and pattern of your life has shifted in a major way. Some of those were intentional things. And like a lot of people, the last few years kind of blew up on us in a way that nobody, nobody really saw coming. Um, what are some of those changes? And I'd love to know how they impacted you and how you navigated them. Well, yeah, you know, I, I mean, skipping to the end of that answer, I would say I navigated them very poorly and learned. <laughs> um, but, you know, I turned 40 right before the 2016 election um, and I was on a big speaking tour and right in the middle of that and trying to find language for all of us in the midst of that really difficult election season. Mm -hmm. uh, not that long after that, um, my husband left his job at our church, and uh, we started attending, or at least visiting and trying to attend other churches. Um, we ended up moving to New York City uh, just about a year before a global pandemic. Um, wow. When we got to New York, I had some pretty serious and ongoing um, pro uh, health problems and chronic pain. And then I think, you know, the pandemic had consequences for all of us that we're still trying to understand right now. So uh, so those are my changes mm. among probably several others. And I would say, um, by and large, I handled them very poorly. I resisted at every turn. And it took me a long time uh, to start to get comfortable with the idea of being a little bit more flexible and adaptable in the world. I think I... Um, I would go back and change so much, but um, I was not ready to become in my middle, in my midlife, an extremely flexible person whose life was upended several times. I was on a really consistent course. Um, I was looking for our forever home. I was like trying to drive my roots into the ground very aggressively. Um, I'm sure you felt this as soon as you become a writer. People start thinking you're an expert in a lot of things. And so I was, <laughs> I was very much in this sort of like 
midlifey expert stable zone and watching it all get upended so many times uh, was an invitation for me to think about life in a really different way and think about my own life and my own choices in in some really different ways. And that's essentially what the book's about. Would you say you're you're naturally a person who embraces change or resists it, or was this a unique set of circumstances that made you resistant in the moment? Well, uh, if I'm honest, I like changes that I make uh, on my own timeline, right? Oh yeah, who doesn't? I love those changes, Shauna. Are you kidding me? All day long, yeah. But I am a little more. Uh, these last sub- several years have showed me I'm a lot more change averse than I was willing to admit. Um, hmm. I I was a lot more committed to um, secu- security, stability, um, uh, more of the same. Please, I really had to confront my my like inner change averse person uh, along the last couple of years. Yeah, I think you said in the book that you really love the Chicagoland area. It was your intention to stay there for a long time. You kind of had this picture, I guess, of what your life would look like. And and then that got disrupted. So just break down some of the factors that led to the the, the change. There was the election. Um, your husband had quit his job, right? What were some other things that were sort of beyond your control that that implemented that. because, And I ask because this, I talk to leaders every single day. It's all the stuff outside of their control, right? Which really is a good parable for the last two to pick your number years. It's like, oh, I had a thing and the thing died. So now I've got this thing and I don't like it. So, you know, it's um, the fact that you use the word died, I think is really, uh, I really connect to that. Um, hmm. Uh, there was a phrase that came up in, uh, I was reading it. It's, it's a, like a Japanese proverb, sort of, or a Zen proverb, and it's let go or be dragged. And I had been, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fair. Yeah. And then along with that, um, let dead things die. Those two phrases oh. were two that I did not like, and I had to learn on a very deep level. Um, I. I refused to let go and consequently was dragged through a lot of seasons. Our life as we knew it had ended. Our core friendships were were um, shifting in significant ways. Our relationship to our church changed and shifted in all sorts of ways. Um, and I was the last one to admit it. And so if I if 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 we're speaking today to people who might be facing or not wanting to face some changes in their lives. Um, A, I would say I'm right there with you with trying not to face them. I did that for a long time. But now with the the benefit of hindsight, I can see that all sorts of things had died, had ended in our lives, and I had to make a new life beyond that. Um, And it was really hard, but I made it harder for myself by being unwilling to admit it. Hmm. How did you eventually agree? Because, I mean, you easily could have just dug in and said, I'm not moving to New York. I mean, that's how families break up. Yeah. Oh, you did that. Okay. For sure. Um, Okay. I mean, like any long marriage, uh, sometimes these negotiations take quite a long time. Aaron was was ready to move away 10 years before I was. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, that's a long conversation, Shauna. And what I regret is um, he said things like... I. 
I want to live a different kind of life. I want to live somewhere else. I want our life to feel more like an adventure. I want it to be more just you and I and our kids and less this like extremely close family, business, church, extended family conglomerate. And I thought, he probably doesn't really mean that because it's different than what I wanted. I was really Mm. afraid. Uh, I was, it's really easy when you're scared to stop listening because you're afraid of what the listening is going to cost you. And I did that. And that's one of my biggest regrets. And Aaron and I have obviously talked about that over and over again. Sure. But I wish that I had, I wish that I had been able to say, listen, I want what I want really badly. But I Mm. also know that you want what you want really badly and you matter too. And um, I wish we would have moved away sooner um, because we, uh, I kept us in a situation where things were sort of long dead and I was unwilling to confront that reality. What, uh, you know, it's funny, we, we just did a, a big change in my little company and it was, it was a problem I'd been working on for a number of years and I couldn't solve on my own. And then my son, who works in the company too, at our retreat back in October of 2021, sort of came up with a new model. And when I saw him do it, I'm like, oh, and then I found myself like questioning it along the way, which is part of your, your job as a boss. It's like, well, is this really like, this is a big gamble right here. This is a big roll of the dice. Let's hope it works. Um, but what I discovered about myself, Sean, is I'm more resistant to change. And I wrote a book about change. Okay, so, and and I had a lot of change in my life. What, and, and, and of course, there's always something at stake, right? Like if you're resistant, you're not stupid. You're protecting something. So what was your attachment? Or do you know what your attachment was to the status quo? Like what, what did staying the same represent to you? I had, um, it's a great question. And I think you're exactly right that um, a, a change is always about protecting something. I tend to, mm-hmm. um, uh, on a, from an Enneagram standpoint, I'm a, I'm a seven with a strong six wing. Uh, okay. Loyalty and, and preserving something. I really had a vision of our life as our, both of our extended families, our church, our friends, our cousins, our nieces and nephews. And I wanted my kitchen table to be the home base for all of that. I wanted to keep it all. I wanted um, I wanted to be the, the place that people come to feel safe and comforted and known. And I wanted our home to be the center of all that. And um, that's not a wrong thing to want. No, that sounds good, actually, to be honest with you. And, and I think that's a part of why I hung on to it so long is it's not like I was saying like, I want, you know, money. Money is all that's important to me or, you know, something like that. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a good thing. Um, but it wasn't what my partner in life wanted. He wanted something really different. And um, I I dug in for a long time. I wish I hadn't done that. Yeah. So you moved to New York in 2019 saying, we have to make all kinds of friends. And then very few cities have been more locked down than New York City for the last two years. That must have been excruciating. Uh, uh, we were moving from a you know relatively normal sized house in the suburbs to a very small apartment that then got a lot smaller when all of us had to work and go to school in it. Everyone's square footage shrunk, I think, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, do you think 
like you mentioned medical challenges that you had as well. We're learning more every year about the mind-body connection. Uh, I talk to a lot of leaders on this show and off-air, panic attacks, digestive disorders, sleep problems. I mean, my goodness, I did a poll of leaders and like half of the leaders in the room had to take something to even go to sleep at night. Couldn't sleep normally. What, what did you learn in your own life about the connection between your mental state and your physical state? Shana. It's been such, I mean, I connect with everything that you're saying. So mm-hmm. many of the leaders I know, and in my own experience, um, our minds and bodies are very connected. And yeah. um, a lot of times we're the, uh, that's sort of the last thing we pay attention to, unfortunately. Um, mm-hmm. So I um, experienced really serious chronic pain in my neck and shoulders um, to, to the point of um, being incapacitated or vomiting or crying. And there was no, my father-in-law is a chiropractor. I was getting excellent chiropractic care. I didn't, it wasn't, uh, there was nothing that he could find or that other doctors could find that there was nothing was broken. There wasn't a. Right. Um, so the x-ray reveals nothing. And then mm-hmm. a friend of mine said, have you read the work of Dr. Sarno? Um, Sarno, S-A-R-N-O. He was a spinal surgery. He was a spinal surgeon at Columbia University Medical School. And uh, there's a documentary about him and about his work called All the Rage. And it's about people who have debilitating pain, usually in their back and neck. And there's no like structural or biological or orthopedic reason for it. And so he, as a spinal surgeon, said, like, I, I... I went into this profession to relieve pain and there's something I'm not understanding. Hmm. And so in his research, what he found is there's a small group of people, not everybody, but there's a small group of people who from their childhood and on through their life for all different reasons have, uh, there have been thoughts and feelings that they've been unwilling to allow into their experience. And essentially those unfeelable feelings and unthinkable thoughts then live in the body. And that- When individuals invited those unthinkable thoughts and unfeelable feelings to to, uh, emerge, you can feel them, you can say them, you can speak them out loud, the pain left. And that was absolutely my experience, and it's still my experience. My goodness, Shauna. Okay. So, I mean, this is, this is your interview. I don't want to put you on the spot. I don't want to embarrass you. But can you give an example of one or two of those feelings or deeply held beliefs that had to go? Absolutely. And I think I'm happy to share yeah. about this because I think the, sure. when I was watching the documentary, I was thinking like, these are like, you know, massive secrets or uh, right. repressed trauma from a childhood. Yeah. You're thinking big stuff, right? And by the way, listeners, we will link to the documentary and the author in the show notes. Yeah. But please share. Me. And I, I mean, this is just entirely anecdotal, just my experience. Yeah, yeah. When I invite my unthinkable thoughts and unfeelable feelings are not like something that happened 30 years ago or a secret being revealed. It's like um it's what sounds like really stupid daily stuff, but it gets me all tangled up and it keeps me in pain. It's sure. um I'm not doing a good enough job in my work. I'm not being responsible enough to the people around me. Um people are disappointed with me. 
um, I'm failing in this or that way. If, if some, this is one of my core ones. Um, if somebody else had the opportunities that I have, they'd do so much better a job with it. It's those kinds of ideas. So you're talking about life, everyday life. <laughs> that this, when I watched the documentary, I thought like, yeah, that, that it would be just something like extraordinary that would be unearthed. For me, it's literally like, this sounds so silly. I lay on the floor. And I look up at the ceiling and I try to think about thoughts and feelings that I don't give myself permission to say out loud. And I practice letting them leave my body and float up to the ceiling and the pain goes away. That's unbelievable. It is to me. <laughs> so not, not to get too much into realized eschatology, but I mean, you know, as well as I do, that when Jesus healed people, the same word for salvation also refers to healing. There's a wholeness to it. There's there's something there. Do you see any kind of link to what we learn about with the healing that happens in the kingdom? Um, and I, you know, I think one of the major uh, one of the reasons that many people are finding their faith experience to be uh, too limited right now is because it doesn't take into account the whole person. You know, hmm. it, there are some faith traditions, uh, you know, it's it's right belief, it's organizing things in your brain, and it doesn't account for what's happening in our bodies, what's happening in our feelings, what's happening in kind of the entire connected or embodied beings that we are. And I think um, to think about healing in a deeply spiritual way, in the way that Jesus talked about it, to think about that being connected to our physical bodies and to the feelings um, that healing for me, it's about muscles and feelings and pain, but it's also about speaking out loud these truths about being limited or not enough or failing in some way and letting God tend to those as well. Yeah, okay, random question might be unanswerable. Neither of us are medical doctors or historians to the best of my knowledge, but like, do you think this is something I'm reading... Um, the book, uh, I think it's called Stolen Focus right now, just started that one. And, you know, we are dealing in this generation with problems that our ancestors never had. Like, for example, a deep ability to concentrate. Yeah, that was actually easier 50 years ago than it is today for a million reasons. Uh, our grandparents, great-grandparents had incredible pain. You know, there was farm life, there was factory life, there was repetitive stress industry. But do you think there's something unique to the modern condition that creates that psychosomatic thing? Or do you think we just better understand it now? I'm just, I'm curious because it does seem to be a modern disease, Shauna. Well, you know, I mean, I'd love to think about it more, but it does seem to me uh, particularly modern and particularly Western. Yeah. I think, and this is like not, I mean, I, I, Italy is still certainly in the West, but the, one of the things that just sprang to my mind is that Aaron and I went to Italy um, this last fall for our 20th wedding anniversary. And uh, in order to, like, one of the ways I get excited about trips is I read a lot about wherever we're going. And mm. I also love cooking and food. And so one of the things that I read was that Italians are just obsessed with digestion. It's like really important to them. So like you eat certain things during certain times of days. You have certain things after a meal. You would never do, serve this with this. But there's this awareness in Italian culture of what's good for our bodies in terms of how we eat. That's mm. completely not a part of our American awareness, you know? And so I think there are so many cultures around the world that know more 
or have retained more of a sense of how we live best, how we feed ourselves best, for example, how we sleep best, all those kinds of things. We've lost a lot of that in our in our current iteration of culture. So skipping back a book, um, you kind of introduced yourself to a whole new way of living, present over perfect. Uh, I'd love to know, do you consider yourself like a driven person? I can hear from some of the messages you send yourself that perhaps that's been a struggle. And I ask as a fellow driven person. I think (laughs) that's an interesting question for me. I think I was raised in a profoundly driven environment, both my family, my church, the Midwest, Dutch culture. I mean, I have like every layer kind of, of what would create drivenness. I, I suspect that my truest self is not particularly uh, driven, but at this point, it doesn't matter. Those, those messages are so deeply inside of me. Okay, that's really interesting, you know, because uh, also Dutch culture, I understand that, the drive, right? What is it? A third of Holland is reclaimed from the sea. Um, you know, we never stop. It's like I finished a big renovation last year. We got another one going on in a few weeks up upstairs. Like there, there is a, a drive. I look at my psychological profiles. Activity is off the charts. And, you know, God redeems all things. But that's really interesting because, you know, I have talked to a lot of leaders and church culture can be either very lazy or very driven. There's almost nothing in the middle. You're either, you don't do much or you're like in the red zone all the time. I'm curious, that is, I've never heard anyone quite say it that way, but if you're perhaps not a person, I wonder what that does to you when the culture and everything around you in the church, in the family unit, in um, the air in the Midwest, in Chicago, is driven. That is a really interesting subject. And I I think that's what brought me to that crisis point that I write about Mm. in Present Over Perfect was there were two layers of it. It was number one, um, I don't like who I've become with right. all of this driving and all of this overworking. And number two, it was, um, I think there's a part of me that's like, there's no there there. I don't like how this feels. Like my husband teases me that I'm a person who, um, when I, ex- I experience uh, um, success largely as fear and pressure, like, Oh, great. More ways to fail. You know, <laughs> uh, Success has not always felt like a, a gift to me. It has felt sometimes like a real, a real challenge, a, a real um, something I have to kind of, yeah, feels like another way to possibly fail. Um, and so I think my trajectory from my late, my mid thirties and now ten years later has been deciding on my own terms what success looks like, separate mm-hmm. from that family messaging or that church messaging. What are the things that really bring me joy? Um, success doesn't do in me what it does in some of my peers. And that's okay. And so it's not what I'm striving after primarily right now. Yeah. Would you, if you had to paint a picture of you at 35 and you at this stage, what are some of the major shifts you would say? Because I think we like, you know, I'm older than you, about a decade and a bit older than you. But I look at 35-year-old me and I'm like, I know that was the same person, but boy, there's some big differences. What? What do you see in you? At 35, I was still really, uh, for the most part, especially in my professional life, I was responding. I was living up to, I was saying yes to every opportunity. I um, 
I wanted, it was like, I was a, uh, you know, I'm a, an eldest daughter, uh, you know, relatively precocious child. And it felt like I took like a, um, uh, a good student front of the class hand in the air mindset into my professional life. Yes. I'll be the one that never says no. I'll be the one that shows up prepared. I'll be the one that is never tired. I was, um, I took the the opportunities I was given very seriously, and I wanted to live up to them. Um, but in an industry like publishing, especially at that time, the amount of opportunities and the expectations, I mean, all of a sudden, you know, there were times when I was doing 100 speaking events a year oh, yeah. with, a, with two kids, you know, I mean, um, and the publishing cycle is if you're good at it, it gets shorter. You know what I mean? They want books fast. Oh, we want a book now. Yeah. And I just didn't have a vocabulary to say, this is too hard. I I think my upbringing was like, keep putting it on my shoulders. I will never get to a point where I say this is too hard or too heavy or too fast. I will adapt to whatever you're asking of me. The problem is I got to a point and I was 36 and I said, I'm done with all of this. If somebody else wants to try to live this life that I have set up for myself, they're more than welcome to try, but I don't want it anymore because I couldn't, uh, I felt like I was stuck behind a pane of glass. I couldn't feel or taste the way I wanted to anymore. I had hit that point of exhaustion where you're just numb. And I knew that like precious parts of my life were getting scraped away. It wasn't, Mm -hmm. I wasn't the parent I wanted to be. I wasn't the partner I wanted to be. I wasn't the friend or daughter I wanted to be. And so at that point, I had to really take apart and remake everything. Was there a breaking point in that for you when you were 36? And like, what was it? Because I think a lot of us live with that vague sense that maybe there's a disconnect between the life we're living and the life we want to or should live naturally. But what was like, for me, it was burnout. I just burned out. And then it's like, okay, everything after will be different. What was there a a, a point for you? I think, um, yes. And I would, I would also say there were like whispers and then a soft voice and then a loud voice. And then, and I only listened (laughs) to the screaming, you know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. There were all different, there were so many different signs. I, you know, some chronic health problems and uh, different ones from the ones I had more recently. Uh, You know, my body was saying like, you can't do this anymore. I was short-tempered. I was very afraid. I wasn't, uh, I wasn't the person I wanted to be, but I, and I think uh, Hmm. as as a parent, um, the one kids to two kids, I think that was a big, there's, there's a lot you can do with one kid in terms of range of motion and schedule and travel, you add in that second kid and things are getting a lot more complicated. I think that helped, but really it was um, getting to the a point of uh, realizing that all the success didn't matter to me. I couldn't feel it or taste it anymore. What I wanted was peace and rest and space. And I was willing to trade it all in for that. Hmm. Wow. There's a a loyalty thing, which I appreciate. I have lots of friends who are Enneagram sixes, but to dissociate from your church of origin, the family ecosystem, not not renouncing, but just like, no, I'm not going to live that way. The pressure that you get from the culture, um, that must have been very hard. How did you feel disloyal? 
Did you feel like what what was that like? Because a lot of people wouldn't make that break. So I'm an Enneagram seven with a six wing. But that that strong, no, that strong six wing, Mm. I'll tell you exactly what I did. I asked permission. (laughs) Um, I had conversations with my parents, my husband, my closest friends, and my closest friends at that time, most of them worked at the church or were elders at the church. And I said to them, I remember we were in a small group together, several, you know, Mm. two or three, two elders, a couple, you know, senior staff members, a couple of friends who, you know, been very involved. And I said, "Um, I want to talk to you guys about something. I, you guys are like superstars. You are, you do amazing jobs. You do huge jobs. You're on the stage all the time. You're making massive decisions for our church. You're, you're, you're rock stars. You're record setters. I, um, I'm not like you and I'm not going to be like you. And I, um, have tried to keep up an intensity that is breaking apart the most important things inside of me. And I need to let you know it's going to change. Um, but I was like, like basically asking them permission, um, to make those changes. And I said, I'm not going to be your like cool, famous friend anymore. I'm going to be like, just like a nice lady who loves her life. And I'm not going to be, there's not going to be anything impressive about me. And I need to let you know, um, I have to make some major changes. And there was silence. And of course, you know, all, I don't know what I thought they were going to say. Like, no, the uh, permission. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. How do you say no to that? But that took tons of courage. And then across the room, one of the people that I respected most around that circle, both because he had a like, really big, big, big job, but also he was a person of great wisdom and character, was and still is. And he said, Shauna, we're not impressed by you. We love you. And that's different. Oh, right. And that was such a gift to me um, to have, you know, people that I really respected, that I looked up to, that I was trying to keep up with say, like, we're not asking that from you. you. You don't have to be like that for us. That was a real gift. Hmm. Boy, oh boy. But there's a lot of people who wish they had that kind of freedom right now. And maybe maybe that'll move uh, some people to have that conversation. So a decade later, you haven't stopped writing. You've had several books. You're still doing interviews. You're still, as travel and global crises aside allow, you're still speaking. Oh, everything's What's different. different? Um, well, yeah. um, I am, this is my first book in six years. And I was all I was on a every three year cycle, which even that was a little long. They, you know, people mm-hmm. people want eighteen months to two years, and I always said like I, just, I don't have enough time to become the next version of myself in two years. Like I need more time to learn some stuff in order to have anything to say. And I'm definitely pushing the outer edges of that at this point with it being six <laughs> years. But I really believe some of what's changed for me is I have a very clear. Uh, I'm very committed to the long game. Mm. Being a writer is not like being a pop star. You don't have to quit when you're 25 or something. I want to make books that are worth reading, that are weighty, that are meaningful, that are um, have a, a life and a depth of their own. And I need to be a certain kind of person in order to do that certain kind of work. And that takes time. And it's not time you can spend if you're on an airplane every three days. And it's not 
You don't become that kind of person if you live in a green room and you don't become that kind of person. You know, if, you know, I got to a point where I said, I think I spend more time with a lavalier mic on than I don't. And that's not right. Hmm. Um, The kinds of people we want to follow are people who live lives of discipline and solitude and depth and therapy and silence. And I'm really committed to being and becoming that kind of person. And I also realized it's my job to steward the pace and dimension of my life. No one will do that for me. No one in the publishing industry is going to, is going to be like, you know what I think your kids need? No, that's not their job. It's my (laughs) job. Yeah. So opportunities are going to come at me and it's my job to have the strength and vision to decide what's right for me and what's right for me now or maybe later. And I take those choices really seriously. That's how I build the boundaries around the scope of my life so I can be the person I really want to be. That's interesting because I think, you know, on the front side of change, and maybe you felt about it differently because I've redefined an awful lot in my life in the last few years, but you feel I'm going to miss out. It's just this massive FOMO thing. And then you get there and you're like, no, this is more. Is Did you have a similar thing to that? And could you explain well, it a little bit? And I mean, I am, you know, I'm a Enneagram 7. I love to play. I'm very extroverted. I'm, I love to cook. I love to host people in my home. But I, there is that law of diminishing returns. And I've learned it the hard way a million times. Too many nights out and even the best meal doesn't taste that great. Too many weekends of friends in town and even those peak moments, you're like, I just need to go home. And I've, I've learned it the hard way over and over and over. And so I work really hard right now to choose um, a rhythm and a pace of life that allows me to really soak up the best of what life has to offer. But that's quieter than I always think. That's slower than I always think. Um, uh, and one of the ways that I learn how to do it is I ask for, I ask for a lot of help from people who do it better than I do. Like at this point, I almost don't say yes to anything without running it by my husband, not because I need permission from him, but because he lives more slowly and intuitively and at a healthier rhythm all the time than I ever have. Hmm. And he can help reflect back to me how things are going to feel. I'm like, no, I think we can do it. I think it sounds great. I think it actually sounds like it all works on the calendar. He's like, okay. (laughs) And so I really, at this point, I really trust his wisdom and his sense of things. And my life is better when it's slower and smaller. And I'm learning, I learn that over and over. I want to, I want to raise this because you're part of the reason I do this podcast is free therapy. Just so you know, Shauna, that's, that's my thing. Okay. Free counseling, free consulting, free therapy. But I'm in a very similar season. So the pandemic ground everything to a halt. And I felt I had a very sustainable travel life and flew over 100,000 miles a year in 2019, but was loving it, like loving it. But when I got home, I never wanted to go out for dinner because as you said, even the best meals don't taste that great. And I'm like, no, let's just stay home in our backyard. Let's not see anybody. Let's just turtle. Like I'll live under a blanket for a week and then I'm back on the road. But I thought I was having a good time. Then you get grounded, international border. I live north of Toronto, 18 months. And all of a sudden, I'm like, I'm never traveling again. But then they got rid of the quarantine. So I started traveling in October of 2021. But this time, I enjoy it. And I wonder if savoring 
is a good filter. You know, I also stopped preaching. I stopped preaching because um, I felt my content well was getting empty there, not in leadership, but in the preaching space. I preached twice this year. I actually enjoyed it. And I'm going to wait until I savor it again. Do you think savoring could be a, a decent filter? Yes. And I think one thing that I love that you're touching on is that they don't, these, these kind of guidelines don't have to be rigid rules forever, right? No. There could be, uh, you could, you know, to, to take down the preaching in this season, three years from now, you could be doing 10 times as much and really love it. Exactly. But yeah. to, to pay attention to what's working in your system and in your body and in your life and in your relationships for this season and I think the word savor is a really good, um, one of the ways that I know I'm off track is when I stop tasting and feeling and hearing, when I stop savoring, when it's when my senses aren't firing right. I know that that's a sign of exhaustion when I start to feel numb. And so I think savoring might be the opposite of that. When it's still delicious, when it's delightful, when yeah. it feels playful, then you know you're doing it on the right rhythm. I love that idea. Oh, I, I, I'm going to hang on to that. I think I'm going to bank that one because it works for relationships too, right? Yeah, maybe. But too many people, not enough people. Like, is it savoring? And having been deprived for 18 months of almost everything, I'm like at a stage where I'm, I'm going to do enough travel that it's enjoyable. Not that you've got to serve and you got to sacrifice, but, you know, a dead heart doesn't serve anybody. We know that. And, uh, and the same goes. Okay, so that's super helpful. Now, you hinted at this a little bit, and you talk about it in your book, but you've also, when you move from Chicago and your community of origin to New York, part of that was a bit of a faith journey, too. What's changed in your faith or your beliefs over the last few years, your spirituality? How's that changed, Shauna? One of the major changes is I was a part of a community that was so... Um, homogenous isn't the right word, but... Um, defined by what we held in common in so many different ways. Um, my uh, so much of my faith experience felt uh, kind of defined by the edges of this community that I was so deeply connected to and committed to. And now um, we go to a relatively small church that had, at least for me, because I grew up in big churches. Yeah, that was wasn't much bigger than that. Yeah. Um, it's a small church, uh, with some kind of high church and liturgical aspects to it, um, and Orthodox theology, but with a, a wide range of attenders in terms of belief and practice. And we live on the grounds of an Episcopal seminary and we're not Episcopalian, but, and, and some of what's so lovely about this is we're getting literally like a bird's eye view into how priests become priests. It's so cool. We see them huh. in their robes, learning to swing the incense, learning to hold the thing with a candle on top. I don't even know all the right words. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And it's so, um, it's like when you hear another a word in another language, it takes on a little bit of, new, of nuance. It's beautiful. When you hear the translations back and forth, you're like, oh, that's even more beautiful than the English term for it, you know? Um, mm. I'm seeing a lot of the beauty and the mystery of the traditions of the church in a way, you know, I grew up in a church that was largely non-traditional uh, and oh, yeah. pretty disconnected from a lot of other faith traditions and histories. It was a very modern, these last 45 years kind of thing. All of a sudden, I mean, I live in a building that's more than 200 years old. Um, 
Our seminary is turning 200 this next year. So when they talk about a tradition, talking about a tradition that's almost as long as our country, you know? And so what that gives me in terms of imagination, dimension, possibility, it's been really broadening for me. Um, and, you know, one of the things we keep talking about and the point of the book is being a learner. Um, yeah. The stories I've been privileged enough to hear in the last couple of years, because I'm asking everyone, you know, tell me about how you grew up. Tell me about what your church was like. Tell me about what kind of church you go to now. What do you love about it? What's terrible about it? I see the church in it. It's so much bigger and weirder and better and more beautiful than it is when you stay too narrowly in one tradition for too long. I, I can appreciate and understand that. I came to sort of the world that we were, you know, we both had a lot of exposure to, and I led an attractional church for a number of years and went through all the transitions that a lot of churches did. And we saw a lot of life change and a lot of people reached. But I also come from a mainline tradition that is centuries old. And there's part of that that is really good. Now, you you know, you you wouldn't, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so please redefine the phrasing here. You didn't really deconstruct your faith. You're just kind of reconstructing it or you're, um, you're exploring the richness of the Christian tradition. Can you say that? The greatest gifts uh, that I was given as a young person and as a young Christian is um, my mom, and I wrote about this toward the end of the book, yeah, my mom. That's where I was going to go next. Oh, okay. <laughs> Same page. Yeah. Um, I was given a front row seat to my mom's process, and it very much was a deconstruction. It was, she grew up in a very conservative Baptist environment, got married very young, became a pastor's wife of a very large, very public church. And when she was in her 40s and I was in my teens, it just like, stopped working altogether. And I knew that because she talked with me about it in what felt like to me, looking back on it, a very brave, but very appropriate, non-dramatic. She normalized what it means for your faith to exist as one thing. And then for you to go through a process with God and with people to build it into something different. Um, my dad supported her advocated for her, asked the elders to give her space and time that she needed and deserved. And, and so what I saw then is my whole church community working together, my mom, my dad, the elders, um, to allow her faith to change and grow into something that was much more um, better suited to the person that she actually was as an adult. And she went on, obviously, to have an extraordinary impact in terms of activism and service and compassion. But I don't know that any of that would have been possible if the options were like, keep showing up or I don't know what, you know, if there yeah. was so, um, if the idea of her needing to do some re-navigating was terrifying or shamed, I don't know where she would be in her life as a person of faith. And I don't know where I would be as a teenager getting to watch that. Um, what that gave me was an expectation that the process of re-navigating re our faith is number one, necessary, and number two, an act of devotion, not an act of disobedience. 
My mom rebuilt her faith because she wanted to keep it, not because she wanted to walk away from it. You know, that's really interesting, um, too, because I believe you hinted at this, and I think it's in the book. Did your mom stop attending for a little while, too? Yeah. Like, like stop going to church, the church your dad led? Yeah. I can almost imagine being a senior pastor myself, the pressure that your dad might have felt or the elders might have felt to say, well, you just can't do that. But he was very supportive, and the elders were very supportive of, of your mom. What would you say to leaders who feel that pressure in their family with a child who doesn't want to attend anymore, a spouse who's kind of lost joy in that? I think you just phrased it so beautifully. I don't want to mess it up. But I mean, this is this is probably more common than we realize, I think, Shauna. Pastor's wife role is not an easy role in a lot of ways. The amount of expectations that go with that, it's very tricky on a lot of levels. But so then several, a couple of years later, when I went through a little bit of a season where I didn't want to go to our youth group. It just, I don't even really know what the reason was. It just wasn't working for me. My parents said, right. so this is, I would say it's a little bit different with a spouse than it is with a kid, obviously. Um, but what they said to me was, listen, you have this great mentor. If you keep meeting with her, you don't have to attend this big group thing, but you have to have somebody talking with you about your spiritual development every week. So you get to pick. And then we've said that same thing in our home. And what that meant to me was they trusted me, that that faith can look a lot of different ways. It also meant that they trusted God and his work in me and in my life and in my heart. And so I think, um, I know the pressure on pastors and uh, how acute it is and how much it would be lovely if all of their uh, family members performed perfectly all the time, right? Like that'd be great. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I also know it's just not 100%. how life is, you know? Um, yeah. And so I would say one of the biggest gifts pastors can give their families, um, one of the things, I can, my, my family didn't do anything perfectly, but they gave me a lot of good things. And um, one thing they were very clear on is you're not employees of this church. You are not little pastors. You're not um, my representative in the world or in the church. You get to be a kid. And the fact that they, because whether pastors know this or not, nobody else tells your kids that. Everywhere Mm. else a pastor's kid goes, they are a representative of their dad or of the church. They're treated like a little pastor. They're treated like a little employee. We joke about it sometimes, about the amount of places where uh, just right in the in the moment I was asked to pray, like if my dad was a tax accountant, would people ask me to do their taxes? No. If my no. dad was a dentist, would they ask me to extract a tooth? No. Mm-hmm. But there's this thing about pastor's kids where they're like, would you like to say grace? And I'm like, I mean, I can, but <laughs> yeah. Um, for a parent to offset that pressure that kids are experiencing everywhere else in the world is a major, major gift to say, like, I don't need you to be great at this. I don't need you to have this all figured out. You have the luxury of being exactly as old as you are right now, and you don't represent this whole big thing. That was a huge gift. Well, deconstruction of faith, and obviously that's not your story. That that wasn't your mom's story in the end either. She was she was finding it. She was defining it for herself. Um, but it is a major issue these days. And thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people are walking away 
not just from the church, but from the Christian faith. What advice would you have for someone who's deconstructing in this season? And I'm sure we have listeners who are doing exactly that, Shauna. I'm experiencing exactly what you're experiencing. I get phone calls about this all the time. I get texts about it all the time. I have friends come into town to say, I need to talk to you about this. I need somewhere to pour out these questions. And what I notice is if you're going to all the trouble to track me down, if we haven't talked for a while, if we're maybe not that close, but you're coming to me, what that says to me is there's something wrong in your community about the openness toward these conversations. And so I think we have to do a better job. If someone gets on an airplane to come talk to like an old college friend, there's something happening in that church where they're not creating the openness to normalize these conversations. And so I think, I also think it's difficult for me to understand why when thousands of people are deconstructing, we blame them and not the systems they're trying to deconstruct, right? Wow. So I think- That's so good. Pastors should be asking two sets of questions. I don't think they need to ask what's wrong with all these people, right? I think they need to ask, how can I more lovingly and effectively care for people who have these questions? And what kind of systems and traditions and thoughts and practices am I perpetuating that um, we may be in like a let go or be dragged scenario? Mm. Do we need to let some things die in the way we've experienced it in the last couple generations? And are the people who are deconstructing the canaries in the coal mine, do they know something we don't yet want to know? I think they do. Oh, that's a great question. That that section of the book really moved me because you kind of described what happens, what has happened when you walk people who are in the process of deconstructing or questioning and you are that guide along the way. And it just made me feel like, oh, that's the kind of person you want to talk to in this moment. And maybe I don't have to throw the whole thing out. I trust God's goodness to tend to us and to usher us through these various wilderness situations. I don't Hmm. believe we're lost. I don't believe we're beyond his reach. I don't believe there's anything beyond his reach. I think most people who are deconstructing have valid concerns about the way they've been treated or the things that have been required from them. And I don't think it's about the person of Jesus in our lives almost ever. Very few people say to me, like, I just read the story of the Gospels and I just can't with that guy, right? Nobody says that. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. <laughs> He's not the problem. The Psalms are not the problem. The creation story is not the problem. The beauty of the Gospel is not the problem. The problem is the very human thing. And it, I don't want to demonize any humans. This is what humans do. We build stuff and we get it mostly wrong. that's how we do it we just have to have the humility and the vision to try again and try again and try again and i think that's what's being asked of every church leader right now what needs to be um dismantled and rebuilt for the coming generation those are good questions not bad ones what advice would you have because we do have pastors listening to this but what advice would you have for them as they look forward to this uncertain future they're tired they've been through everything the world has been through, and then some. They've got a divided church. Their family's hanging on by a thread some days, and so are they. I mean, there was that Barna stat last fall that said 38% of pastors are actively considering leaving ministry, not their church, but ministry. What, what word would you have to pastors who are saying, these are not my best days? 
my sense of empathy is like, I, I can't even get the words out. My compassion and empathy for what pastors have been through in the last couple of years. I, I want to like gather them all up and take them to somewhere between like a hospital and a spa and a camping trip. Like let's, I just want to take care of, um, especially a friend of mine's a pastor. I talked to her yesterday for a long time and we were kind of saying the dynamic in her life is she has experienced everything that everyone else has in the last couple of years, right? Yep. In her own life, with her own kids, in her own neighborhood, all of it. And now she's bearing the weight of what everyone else has also experienced. And she just said, like, it used to be in her, she's like, back in the before times, I could be doing great. And I had the capacity to carry the weight of what someone else was carrying. Or like, most people were doing okay. And just these people needed my help. Now she's like, I'm not okay. And nobody's okay. And I don't know how we keep doing this. Mm. And so I would say um, the number one hope or prayer or thing I would recommend to pastors is whatever resource of care you have available to you and your family, take it. If mm. anybody is offering you time, space, space, rest, help, therapy, spiritual direction, a break, a little cabin in the woods, now is the time to receive whatever possible healing and care people are willing to give to you and also start asking for it. I know pastors are like we're, pastors are trained to never do that. Right. But like, tell your board how bad it is. Tell your elders how tired you are. Um, tell the team that you report to that your family needs a little space or time or help or therapy or whatever. Um, The road ahead for the church is is long, and it's not going to be great the next several years. I think we know that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we do. The best gift our pastors can give, the best investment they can make in the future is their own restoration and um, heal. Like, um, again, I want to take everybody to like a, a, a spa times hospital times camping trip. I want pastors to be... Um, renewed and restored and given the resources that they need to go into a really difficult season that we're facing as a church. Well, and you write about that so beautifully too, self-compassion, self-care in your new book. I guess I haven't learned that yet. Great title, by the way. I would also say a little challenge. We do have a lot of business leaders listening as well, most of whom are involved in their church. And if You've been fortunate to have a few extra resources. Maybe this is the time to fund something like that for your pastor or some church staff. You can do it. Do it. Oh, Shauna, this has been a joy. I am really grateful for the time that you made for leaders today. Thank you for the gift you are in your writing and in your ministry. And um, the book is available anywhere you can get books. But tell us where people can find you these days online. Well, and thank you for having me. This has been a really um, life-giving conversation. So thank you for- like, Oh, thank you. For me too, Shauna. Oh, good. I'm glad. Um, you can, yeah, the book, the book is available everywhere. Local bookstores especially would love to track it down for you. Even if they don't have it, they'll find it. There are some special editions at a couple different stores. Barnes & Noble has one. The Audible version will be ready soon too. And then you can find me. Um, mostly I'm not on social media a ton except on Instagram. And that's just mm. Sneakwist. Got it. Thank you so much, Shauna. Thank you. I found that so refreshing and so helpful and so honest. 
And you can get more at the show notes. Just go to kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 489 where you can learn more. I'm uh, going to tell you about next episode, but I also want to make sure you check out our partners. We've got a couple of new partners uh, on this episode, and you know we vet them very carefully. I've had lots of conversations with the folks behind the He Gets Us campaign. So if you want your church to partner and uh, really connect with people who are seeing the ads and want to know more about Jesus, go to hegetsuspartners.com slash carry to join the largest faith campaign in history. And we're all watching what's happening in the Ukraine. You can help the war victims in Ukraine by going to convoyofhope.org slash donate. That's convoyofhope.org slash donate. Next episode, something completely different, Dave Adamson. A lot of you know him as Ozzy Dave. And he led a social and online ministry for several mega churches in the U.S., including North Point. And we go all over the place about the meta church, the existing church, and well, how he's doing as a leader too. These have been intense times as a leader. And here's an excerpt. I think one of the most innovative things some churches could do is to stop streaming their online services and instead pour their time and energy into making content that meets the needs of the people in their context. The, the story that backs that up for me was this pastor from Texas. He said, I stream my services every Sunday and maybe get 80 people watching, maybe, maybe 80 people. But two nights ago, I went for a walk with my dog midweek and as I was walking my dog around, I pulled out my phone and I got onto YouTube and started streaming live onto YouTube and just said, hey, if you live in this area and you need prayer, why don't you just leave me a comment and I'll pray for you right now. I woke up this morning and that video has 18,000 views. Oh. Now I'm thinking, I don't ever want to preach a sermon ever again. <laughs> I don't want to wow. stream my lives. And I said, that's when I realized the most innovative thing some churches could do is to stop streaming their services on Sunday. That's coming up next time on the podcast. Also coming up, Susan Kane, Daniel Pink. Who else have we got? Vanessa Van Edwards, Trip Crosby. That one's going to be a lot of fun. Brian Tome, Chad Veach, Ramit Sethi, and so much more. If you subscribe, you get it automatically. And I just want to thank you so much for listening. Thank you for sharing and leaving ratings and reviews. And if you're enjoying conversations like this, I want to encourage you to check out the Art of Leadership Academy. If you want to know where I am online most days when I'm not behind a microphone, I am in the Art of Leadership Academy. That's something brand new we just started, and it is going amazingly well. The quality of the conversation, the dialogue. If you're tired of social media, you got to check out the Art of Leadership Academy. In that, you're going to find church leaders and business leaders who are encouraging each other, swapping ideas, uh, sharing best practices, and really sharpening the saw of leadership. This is what we hope for when we launch the Academy on March 1st, and it's going better than we expected. And you can get in for just $397 a year. But that not just gives you dialogue. This is not like an alt social media thing. It also gives you access to all of my premium content, gives you access to live monthly coaching calls, personal interactions with me. I actually message people back personally inside the Art of Leadership Academy, and a whole lot more. So if you really want to connect and do a deep dive, we also do monthly staff training. Did I mention that? And then we have a community of top-tier leaders. So it's not just me mentoring you. It's 40 top-tier leaders who show up on a regular basis and bring their best to the Art of Leadership Academy. You can get in for just $397 a year. That's it. No catches. 
If you don't like it, 30-day money-back guarantee, check it out at theartofleadershipacademy.com. That's where you'll find me when I'm not behind this microphone. Thank you so much for listening, everybody. And I hope you have a fantastic week and day. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.